or we're going to be doing timelining and trying to um, come to interpretation on these visions in these various chapters and try to line things up and make comparisons, which is what we did this week in our homework. It's going to be very helpful to you to be able to see on the board what I'm doing. So that's, that's a bit of an advantage. Um, if the Zoom becomes annoying to you now, can Will the Zoom be loaded anywhere, or is it only this? Um, I'm recording now, and I'm planning to upload the audio like right before. And okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that you could do a, a visual, but but what I will do is this. As Kristen just said, we will upload the audio portion of this lesson just like we used to do and my chart once we fulfill all the work that we're going to do on it tonight it will go out to you by email tomorrow or wednesday depending on how it goes if i'm on board i plan to do it on tuesdays but it'll go out to you and then you can go on and listen to the zoom by audio just like you used to do through austin oaks before so we're just kind of playing this through this is really new to me and I'm not terribly comfortable with an audio thing it's, or a visual thing. It's very uncomfortable to me. So I'm going to try to pretend you're not there and move on. <laughs> okay, so here's, we're just going to go ahead and get started. Now, in the morning class, we have a full room, which really makes a difference. I mean, there's, um, right now I have 10. I have room for 12, room for two more in the daytime class. It's been really lovely. The, the class is so excited. Everyone is... Yuck, 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 yuck. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Kristen is my cheerleader at the moment. But it has been, it's been a lot of fun because everybody's just so happy to be back in class and back to fellowship and back to a little bit of normalcy. Um, and in our classroom, I, I almost dare not say it, but we don't wear masks because I can't wear one because of my sinus issues, which I'm still battling with, as you all know. Um, but none of them are fearful. No, none of them are worried about the COVID. It, you know, so we're all just, we're moving on forward in life as if God's in control of life and death as he is, right? And so it's been great because the fellowship is so sweet and everyone is so happy to just have life back, you know? And so this is one of those pieces in the life of a Christian that is so essential for just basics of feeling normal. So everyone's doing really well. We're, ha we're having a really good time. Um, I would like to see the evening group grow uh, for whatever reason right now. Uh, the students that I've always had before in my evening group are not coming back and I don't know why, but I've got a few. I think I've got five for this class. Uh, at the moment we have one, one out sick. I don't know where the other three are, but we'll, Terry is one and then, Yay. right. Okay. Okay, so that's it. So in any event, we won't worry about it. We'll wait on God to just provide whatever it is that he does is fine. And I'm good with what I'm happy to teach one. <laughs> I'm happy to just teach. <laughs> so it's very exciting. Okay, so we are going to move on with our homework lesson now. Let's get let's just dive in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and get started. Father, thank you. What a blessing it is to be together and to have this fellowship and to see people, to, you know, engage and interact with them. But Father, most of all, we are just so thankful to engage with you again in this kind of a setting. We know, Father, there's 
the personal time that we've spent, even all over these past 10 months, apart from doing our precept study, we've all been in your word and we've been watching sermons online and we've been, you know, doing the things that we can do. But Father, there is something unique about the fellowship that comes from doing a study and then coming together and discussing it as a group. And the value of that and the encouragement of that kind of interaction, Father, we we're just thankful to have it back, and we praise you for that. And we uh, ask that you would just bless us tonight as we open your word, as we dig back into Daniel. Uh, last week, we, we covered a nice review, and so this week, we're ready to actually dig right back in and look at chapter 7 and try to come to some understanding about what we're looking at there. Father God, we just praise you. We ask you that by the power of your spirit that you would come, you would fall upon us, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and give us clarity of understanding. Father, we praise you that you loved us so much that you've given us the story of the end before the beginning because you are the one who understands these things, who has knowledge and insight and understanding of all things. So Father, we just come to you tonight and ask that you would give us a measure of that, that we might praise you for it and that we might live according to it. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So now the first thing we want to do is go back and just kind of quickly review what it is that we've been doing with our homework. We have a problem with our, oh, okay. Uh, we want to go back in and look to see what's going on with homework as far as what did we do this week? I have a lot of brand new students, which is pretty amazing to me in my morning group. We have, some of them had come for part one of Daniel, and then we took such a long 10-month break that now they're back into it again, and they practically like coming in as a brand new student. So with more than half or more of my morning group being brand new students, I, I feel like I need to make sure that everyone is understanding the method that we're going through and, and the steps that we're going through. Um, Every study that you do, you learn a different kind of tool in your toolbox of do, uh, through doing your inductive study. Inductive study, each, each study is tailored to the literary style that you're working in, right? So if you're working in a, um, in a book like uh, Timothy or uh, Romans, you know, one of the letters or some of the doctrinal things, those are handled differently. But in a book like Prophecy, you've got some unique things that you have to, uh, you know, come up with ways of looking at it to, in order to come to sound interpretation. Because you can't just make a simple list and say, oh, that's what it means. Because that's not, not going to make sense to you when you're talking about something like what we looked at in Daniel 2, which was a statue. And what did you see with the statue? A head and shoulder and thighs and legs and feet. And you're like, okay, that's the list, but now what does that mean? And so you cannot use the same tools for uh, visions or prophetic utterances or visions, which is what we're dealing with in Daniel, as you can with what you would do if you were handling uh, just a, a letter, for instance, where it's factual or a historical document like the book of Acts, where you're just doing this is historical record. These are the facts. These are the people, the places, the events, but everything is clearly stated. There is no hidden uh, message in the things that are given. So for that reason, Daniel is handled differently. So what we want to do right now is go back and review who our author is. And our author is who? Daniel. Yay. 
that you are the only one, so you're going to have to answer until the rest of our group comes. Um, and now our major subjects in the in the book of Daniel, there's really there's quite a few actual actually quite a few s subjects that are going on in here. But when you consider the biggest picture of it, what is the major emphasis of Daniel? Okay, that God is sovereign. So God is God Most High. That's the title. The title that's used is God Most High. And since that's the most repeated title that's given to us concerning God, that title tells us the quality or the characteristic about God that he really wants to emphasize in, the, in this particular writing. So God Most High, by definition, is what? Do you remember what we concluded, the characteristic of God Most High, what that was? You actually already said it. Sovereignty, yeah. God most high, by definition, is speaking to his sovereignty, that he is the authority. Do you remember what the key verse was for the book? Or there were a couple of them that, that could be chosen, but... Do you have your at-a-glance chart handy? Okay, on your at-a-glance chart, you should have a, a place on there that says key verse for the book. It should be down in... Right in one of these places. 417. Well, it's 221. I'm surprised it's not. Literary 417. Style, author. Okay, so, all right, let me just direct you then. Go to chapter two, look in verses, I think it's 20 or 21. And let's read, read that together. Right, read chapter 2, 21 and 22. Okay, so there's actually two strong characteristics in that particular verse that are uh, displayed for us about who our God is. One is that he is what? Okay, so he's sovereign. And the other one is what? He reveals things because he knows. And by the fact that he knows, what is that characteristic? God is omniscient. Very good. So he's, he's sovereign and he's all-knowing. And by those two qualities and those two things, which are, are going to be repeated over and over throughout the book, are they not? Do you remember in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, as we were progressing through those first six chapters, um, if you just kind of in your mind go back and recall some of the storylines, what we kept seeing about God was that, for instance, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, Yes. And what does Daniel do? The king is going to kill everybody. Remember that? Okay, so then what does Daniel do? There you go. He goes to God and says, God, you know, we need an answer to this because our lives are in jeopardy here. And God reveals it to him. And then he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he say? Let me tell you what God, it's not something within me, King. I don't know these things, but let me tell you what the God most high, the God, God uh, who knows all these things, the one who knows what's hidden, what's the, the profound things. Let me tell you what he says. And then he gives him an interpretation of that uh, dream. So that's one of the things that we're going to look at tonight is chapter two's dream. What was the dream? And then what Daniel gave him as interpretation. And we're just going to lay that out as our very first foundation, because one of the things you want to do when you are studying um, 
well, any book of the Bible for that matter, but in particular, a book like this of prophecy. If you want to try to come up with a, a good understanding of what it is that you're looking at and come to understand the meaning of it more thoroughly, right? Even better than just what Daniel tells us in chapter two alone would be to continue to look in the book, within the book itself by the same author who has the same historical setting and background, has the same exact um, purpose for his writing, which we have now looked at Daniel 2, 21 and 22 and said, what he's doing is he's showing us that God is sovereign and that God is omniscient, right? And if those are the two strong things that God is trying to teach us, the major subject is that God is omniscient, that God is sovereign. So let's write that up there. God is sovereign and he's all-knowing. And then what are some of the key words, by the way, in the book? Visions, dreams. There you go. Kings and kingdoms. And basically, those are the, the big ones. And there are others, but those are the most important ones. Kings and kingdoms, visions and dreams, and then their interpretation, right? So those being the focus of this author, when we look at chapter two and we see the first vision, if we want to understand it better, maybe, yes, he gives us interpretation in chapter two, which we're going to note. But then what you want to do is you want to say, well, how much more can I learn about that? What, what else does he really mean on that? And what inductive Bible study teaches you is that when you want to get good understanding of a term, of a, of a, of a subject even, <clears throat> is that you would want to compare uh, like material with like material. How many times have I said compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges, but don't compare apples to oranges, right? Don't go from a, from a book of prophecy and then go into a, a, uh, a doctrinal and try to make a comparison because that's not always going to work for you. It might to some degree on some issues, but often it won't give you anything, right? If you want to get interpretation of what's going on in Daniel, one of the best places to look is in Daniel. So that's why Kay on day five of this week's homework, she said to you, go back and look at chapter two and chapter seven, those two visions and make a comparison. So what, what we want to first establish is what is the distinction between chapter two and chapter seven? So let's go back and talk about, first of all, the, the kingdoms that it, that it was uh, spoken of in. In chapter one, what was the kingdom? Who, who was in charge at that point? Nebuchadnezzar. So we're talking Babylon, right? So we have Babylon in chapter one. What about chapter two? Babylon. Chapter three, Babylon. Chapter four, Babylon. Chapter five, most of five, all the way through verse 30. We're still in Babylon. Now, chapter five, verse 31, all the way through chapter six, we are in what kingdom? Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. We're going to come to see the full name on that later. And then when we get now to chapter 7, which was this week's homework, where are we? We're back in Babylon. We're back in Babylon. The very, as a fact, go back and read chapter 7, verse 1 for me. Chapter 7, verse 1. 
Okay, go back to now chapter one, verse one, where we started in Babylon, and tell me what you see there and how does it. Very good. So in chapter one, you see that the king is who? Who's the, ki uh, who's the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter seven, who's the king of Babylon? Belshazzar. So obviously, although we're within the same kingdom from chapter one to chapter seven, there is a switch in who these kings are. So one of the things that Kay had us do on your day two and three was to look at your timeline chart. Do you remember the timeline that we all looked at? It should, it, yours should look somewhat similar to this, right? It may not be totally the same, but it's right. And I like to color code mine and you did too, good for you. Yeah, because it helps me just visualize it. But one of the things she asked us to do is go back and look at different parts on the on the, the timelines here. Like, for instance, she said, look at the sieges, right? And when did those start and when did they end? And who was taken captive in the first siege? Well, it says right here in this little block right here, it says three sieges of captivity. Who was in the first siege on that? Daniel and his three friends, right? And then it, it goes on down the line. So what is the timeline of their captivity? When they go into captivity, what is the year? Oh, 605 BC, exactly. Now, looking at Nebuchadnezzar, when does he begin to rule over Babylon? 605. 605. Very interesting that those coincide together. So it looks to me like, like, Nebuchadnezzar sort of made his name by making by seizing uh, Jerusalem, and it, it's at that point then his father turns over the kingdom ruling to his son. And there is history behind that. We didn't do a whole lot of look into that in this particular um, refresher that we did here in part two. But back in part one, we did we did do some reading on that, but it wasn't the emphasis of our information. We simply know that he had a father and his father ruled for about 21 years according to this timeline that's given to us here. And that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took power in 605 at the same time that Daniel is taking captivity. That's why Daniel and his friends, when they're taken captive, what happens to them? They're taken back to Babylon and they're taken to be trained to come into service for the king. So. What we now know is, if we were to do this on a timeline down here, we're, we know that we start in chapter 2 then, when this vision comes to Nebuchadnezzar, we are still in his first year of reign, is that correct? Would chapter 2, does it tell us? Second year. Second year. So we are in at 604, right? So it's 604 BC, and it's Nebuchadnezzar is the king, correct? Now, when we get to chapter 7, we, says, we said it's who? Belshazzar. And do we have on that timeline of when, yeah, what is the date on there for Belshazzar? 553 B.C. So what, how much time has passed? Well, just a, a general rule. About... 50 years between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. So the dream that was given in chapter two to who? 
Nebuchadnezzar. And then about 50 years later, a dream is given to who? No, it's at the time of his son, Belshazzar, but who's, who's chapter seven's dream given to? To Daniel. So this is really quite interesting when you just look at this on a timeline and actually in your mind, just note these things. And this is part of the inductive process of just historically laying it out in your mind, what's happened, in what order, what's transpired at this point, how long has it been? I mean, you got to think about uh, Daniel. He's now at least... Well, he's over 50 years older than he was at the beginning of this. He started here in 605 BC when he went into his captivity. And what does the chart tell us about his age? He was about how old? Do you remember? Yeah. 15, 16, 17, somewhere there. I mean, they, they debate about it, but about 15 to 17 years of age. So 50 years later, he's now how old? 60 something he's my age right so now he's an old man <laughs> old like me and now he's having his vision down here so that that helps you just kind of first of all it helps you to realize how much water has gone under the bridge in daniel's life he has served nebuchadnezzar all these years and now he's under belshazzar and what we looked at when we when we read chapter six about belshazzar what did belshazzar know about daniel when he came to the throne and he saw the handwriting on the wall he really knew very little or he did know but he had sort of dismissed him right because one of the things i remember it saying in chapter six you knew all these things right? Because the mother, the queen mother, or whoever she was, the queen comes in and has this discussion with Belshazzar and says, there is a man in the kingdom who can give you understanding of the writing on the wall. And he says, there was a man named Danny who was among the sons of, of Judah, who was brought captive by your father, Nebuchadnezzar. And we now know this is his, actually his grandfather, probably, right? Or father-in-law through marriage. But he's not... He's, he's not his actual father, but there's been 50 years passing and he knew about Daniel, but apparently he had simply dismissed him because when he needed interpretation, who did he call on? No, before the, he turned to the Chaldeans, to the, the soothsayers, the, yes, all the magicians of the, of the land at that time. Right. And so then when the queen comes in and says, you, you know, there's this man who does have interpretation, who knows visions and dreams, in whose God there's a spirit about him that he can interpret these things. And she says to him, and you knew all these things. Let's go back and read that because I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah. Let's see. I've got to open my observation worksheet here. um wrong one it's in chapter five oh, i'm sorry i got the wrong chapter chapter five <laughs> okay <laughs> okay okay verse 22 is the verse where she has this con has this conversation going on dialoguing with him and he says because in verse 19 because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him and all the people's nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him so she goes on to tell the story about nebuchadnezzar and how nebuchadnezzar eventually bows his name to god most high right which we saw in the previous chapters 
Um, this is Daniel answering. That's exactly right. Dan Daniel is answering. And then he goes on and talks about how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, which is a pretty cool story, right? That, that whole event was very cool. And he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. I want you to hear those words. He was deposed. He was taken off that throne. His glory was deposed from him, right? And he was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. There's a, a mental illness called bovine something. And it, it's, it, it is actually a mental uh, state that it's a diagnosis. It is, it is an actual literal diagnosis. And he says his, he began to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until what happened? He there you go, until he recognized. Now, very, what's very interesting is before in, um, was it chapter five where he was? No, it was chapter four. In chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God, God told him seven periods of time are going to pass over you until you will finally recognize me as God most high. And when you do that, I will restore you. So here we see him Daniel now reflecting this storyline back to him and he's saying um, and he says until you recognize that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes yet you his son Belshazzar have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this now so this tells us that Belshazzar did know about Nebuchadnezzar and the dreams and the visions. He knew about this dream that he had had also concerning the statue. He had known about the, the tree vision that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had had and that Daniel also gave the king warning and that he would go into um, become like a beast of, or an animal for all these years. And he did. And he says, but you have exalted yourself against the God of heaven or against the Lord of heaven. Now, we talked last week in our other classes, and I know you weren't here, so I want to go back and kind of address it. How we see God dealing differently with Nebuchadnezzar versus Belshazzar. Remember with Nebuchadnezzar, how many times did God, through his servants like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how many times did God keep showing him who he was, his power, his sovereignty, his ability? One of the things that the three men, when they were about to be cast in the fire was our God is able to save, but even if he doesn't, what? That's right. We still will not worship you. So what we see then with Nebuchadnezzar as he's looking at these three men in the fire and then a fourth man appears and yet he still resists it. Right. And then the next chapter we see him then have the tree vision, right? And yet he still resists. And Daniel says, look, I wish this dream weren't about you, king. Wish it were about your enemies. But if you'll just repent, right, maybe God will not bring this upon you. But what does Belsh or Nebuchadnezzar do? Yeah. As a matter of fact, a whole year had passed. Think about that. So God has shown himself. To, to Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over and over, right? And then he finally says, look, I'm going to humble you. 
I'm going to do this to you, and then you're going to recognize me. And so how does God know that he's going to recognize him? How does God know that after seven periods of time, that then finally Nebuchadnezzar will lift his eyes? That's right. Because, again, because he's an all-knowing God. So in God's sovereignty, he puts into motion life occurrences that because he knows Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and remember, we we didn't look at it in in our homework time, but think about um, Hebrews where it talks about God. He he examines the heart, right? And his his word is like a two-edged sword. It can divide between, um, what is it, marrow marrow and, and, yeah, yes. And it can discern even the intents of the heart. And so God is a God who examines the heart and he examined the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. And apparently he came to see and, and was knowing he, because he is all knowing that he would humble his heart. And so God continues to pursue him, continues to pursue him. Right. And in the end, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar lifts his, his eyes to heaven. He proclaims God as God most high. And, and uh, uh, apparently, from the text, he is saved. There's salvation for Nebuchadnezzar. But now compare that. Do a contrast review in your head about Belshazzar. What happens with Belshazzar? He has a big party. He has the party, takes all the stuff out of the temple. Right. Drinking. Having a party. And toasting to the other gods with the vessels that are intended for God's glory. Okay. And when this is all over, there's handwriting on the wall, right? What was, let's read it. What was the handwriting on the wall? What did it say? Yeah, well, let's see if I can find. Okay, now we're in chapter 5, verses 25 to 28, right? Okay, read that for us. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Okay, so how does that differ from how he handled Nebuchadnezzar? No, he... And what does it say is the reason... Does he give us any kind of hint in there as to why... God doesn't continue to pursue, 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 pursue. Even though he, he did know, because we just read that, Belshazzar did know about these events concerning his grandfather or his father-in-law, whoever, whatever the relationship says his father. So he knew all about Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled him. And yet in this inscription, the interpretation that we just read, it says of him, what? God has numbered your kingdom, put it to an end. Why? There you go. God has weighed his heart. Does that not sound just like the Hebrews that God's that God pierces the heart? He divides between bone and marrow. He knows the heart and the intent of the heart. And so here we have a a proclamation that the all knowing sovereign God of, of this writing is showing us. He examined the hearts of both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar. He saw a man who could be humbled. So what does God keep doing with him? Pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. But when he looked at the heart of 
Belshazzar, what did he see? I have looked at your heart. It, it, I have weighed it in the balance and I have found it deficient, it says, or wanting is another phrase that is sometimes used. So in this case, what you see is how God deals differently with different people because he knows the end from the beginning. And it's not because God determines it for the person, but that he is, he is able to see the end from the beginning and he knows the heart of the individual. Um, it kind of reminds me of the storyline of Joseph uh, or not Joseph, of uh, Pharaoh, when um, it says that he, God hardens his heart, right? But why does he harden his heart? What had Pharaoh done? He had hardened his own heart over and over. Hi, come on in, have a chair. So we have the exact uh, picture, I think, in this book of showing us two. Um, Y'all can come up. Yeah. Just come, move in closer wherever you want to be. That helps you out. That might be a good spot for you right there where there's not light on you if you don't like the light. Okay, super. Anyway, so what, what God shows us, I think, through these two um, records of, of salvation for one and judgment of the other is that God is an all-knowing God that's sovereign over the affairs of man and in the life of one man he keeps pursuing and pursuing until finally the man, his heart is humbled and he lifts his eyes to heaven. But with the other, we see him examining his heart, finding it deficient and, and saying this very night. What, and so what happened? Verse 31 of chapter five. Yeah. And in verse 30. Yeah, it says that very same night, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So God found him deficient because he had examined his heart and found it deficient. So it isn't that God made an arbitrary choice for one or the other, but that he has examined the heart of both men. And he came to understand that one was a man who could be humbled. The other was a man who would not be humbled. And so he dealt with each one accordingly. And that, again, reveals to us the God most high of Daniel, who is all-knowing and sovereign. So you get to see the balance of it in the, in the display of the storylines here. Okay, so that gives us a good backdrop to what we're looking at as far as that goes. And so then when we see this timeline, this helps us also to see where we are in the timeline of events and all the things that have transpired through the work of Daniel and through the life of Daniel under the kingdom of Babylon. And we know that Daniel goes all the way to the very end and he actually enters into the, at least the first years of Darius because then it says in the next chapter six, who, co who comes into the kingdom in chapter six? Darius. Darius. And Darius begins to, to do what in verse one? Yes. He's appointing all these different people to rule, help him rule in his kingdom. So he's establishing his kingdom and his rule and his authority in that, in that kingdom. And who, who is in the storyline of that is Daniel. So we see Daniel now who had been dismissed by Belshazzar and considered insignificant, who is now raised back up again through divine providence, through God's uh, you know, obviously God's divine work and also through the fact that he's faithful <laughs> through to God through all of this. And so 
through the through the through the death through the ups i would say because he's up when he's with the king nebuchadnezzar and then in the downs through belshazzar daniel remains faithful through all of it now he comes in another king darius and a new kingdom the medes and the persians and dare and uh daniel is once again raised up again our sovereign god who's all-knowing gets displayed okay so in the homework that we did then we went back, we marked time references in each of those chapters. We were supposed to have recorded the main event of each chapter of Daniel on your at-a-glance chart, which hopefully you all did that. Let me see if mine is handy here. Let's see if I can pull it out. Huh. It's always tough when you put it away. See, this is the the danger of being organized because when you put stuff away then you can't find it again <laughs> your at a glance chart is do you have yours handy okay good i can't find my at a glance chart what did i do with it back here here it is see i put it away okay so week one's homework or this week two's homework it's actually technically week one because it's chap it's Daniel part two, your lesson one, which is where we're at now. Your your job was to go back over your at a glance chart, refresh your memory on everything, which we mostly did last week in our introductory class zero. Um, but that was your homework to do now. And it should have been pretty easy because of that lesson that we did last week together. But you want to make sure that your at-a-glance chart is filled out, that your titles are on there, that you're noting things such as this, who's, which kingdom is around, where are we, so that now what we see in this timeline by putting it this way, rather than <laughs> sequentially in a chapter, but if you put it on a timeline, what we're seeing now is we had a little, like, like a little hiccup in there in chapter six, where the Medo-Persia came into the scene, but now in seven, we went back to Babylon. So we see the, the first vision in chapter two was under Nebuchadnezzar. The time frame is approximately 604 BC when this dream occurs. And now what we're looking at for today's homework or this week's homework in chapter seven, it was, it was still under the Babylonian cap, uh, captivity, but it was under Belshazzar. And according to your timeline right here if you looked on here belshazzar began at 553 bc so we've, we've passed about 50 years that's a quick review for the two of you all that's what we've covered so far we've done a lot of stuff but most of it you were here last week for so you really haven't missed anything okay for those who are zooming with us now they got pretty much a, a little bit of a review of what we did last week. Okay, so that's good. So make sure you've got your at-a-glance chart caught up and up-to-date. If you don't do that, because that's super important, these at-a-glance charts are one of the most important tools you can develop for yourself and hang on to because they are going to be the thing that you keep referring back to. Every time we do anything, we go back to our at-a-glance chart. And you're just going to keep building on that. So make sure that's handy and done. And your timeline... You know, I like to color code mine. I don't know if you all did that or not. When you uh, marked your timeline that, that was given to you, this uh, chart, 
Daniel's timeline, but I, the, I like to kind of color code it because that helps me see the difference between the two kingdoms and, and the Greece kingdom that's going to follow the Medo-Persian isn't even on this timeline here at all. It's not even addressed, but we will be getting into it, won't we, when we move further on into Daniel, into the next dreams and visions that are going to be coming. So hang on to those. Those are important to cover. So we did that. Uh, time references at a glance chart, identifying the literary style, which we know is what? Our literary style for this book? That's right, prophecy and history. And why is it important to identify the, the type of literary style we're working with? There you go. It's all about interpretation because you're going to use different interpretation tools and um, methods for a, a, a literal book, like a, a book of history or a, or a letter, right? Then you will for a book like what we're in, which is history and prophecy. Prophecy in particular is, is tricky because how do we get the prophecy in this book? It's through visions. And visions is all imagery. And imagery has to be interpreted, right? Okay, so it's important to make that note. Um, so this week's homework you did on day two and three was to go through Daniel chapter seven. Again, mark your keywords. What kind of keywords did you mark in Daniel seven? Good. Dreams Good. and visions. You know what? You're almost always absolutely going to get a star if you say God. really good. He, he knows how to schmooze the teacher, doesn't he? <laughs> Kingdom and dominions. Very good. So she gave you that. She gave you the list. You know, that's the thing about precept. It's funny. It's like you're supposed to find them yourself, but then she'll give you the list at some point. If you just wait long enough, she'll tell you, <laughs> which is always pretty funny. Although often I found that I mark keywords that she doesn't even list. And sometimes they turn out to be important. And sometimes they really don't, you know, but like um, in chapter one, the distinction between sons of Israel and sons of Judah. Remember, we talked about that last week. The distinction, do, do you recall, Kristen, when we talked about that in part one? In chapter one of Daniel, it begins to saying about the sons of, of Israel. And among the sons of Israel were, the, were some sons of Judah who were Daniel and his three friends. Do you remember what the definition of son, Judah is? The, if you do a word study on Judah? It's, it's to throw Lion. praise. And who, who do you throw praise to? God, most high. So in the case of Daniel and his three friends, the distinction is made that they were different than some of those sons of Israel who also were taken captive with them at the same time. But Daniel and his friends were those who threw praise to God. And so what you see in the storyline of chapter one right away is Daniel and the three friends are like cream. They start to float to the top right? They, they excel um, among even their fellow um, Hebrew brothers, and they're called the sons of Judah. So that's a, one of those times where I can say to you that I picked out a keyword and marked it and then did a word study on it and found it really was significant. Although we didn't talk about it in homework and it wasn't a part of the lesson, it did turn out to reveal something to me that I thought was unique and insightful. And it, it 
it to me it kind of made a profound statement about how that that made them distinct and i wondered when i read it why would they call them sons of israel one in one and then refer among the sons of israel there's these sons of judah and i'm like what what was the distinction because all the ones taken in that captivity were sons of judah they were all from the same place so it was it turned out to be an interesting word Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, right. Do not go over. That's exactly right. Because, and she did tell us, I think we're going to spend three weeks mm -hmm. on chapter seven. So we're spending a lot of time on it. What does that tell you then about chapter seven? If we're going to spend three weeks in the, in it, it, well, <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's going to be very hard. That's very <laughs> but it's very important. There you go, Kristen. That's really the, the key. The key is that chapter seven must be very important. It's important enough that she wants to make sure you actually really get all the most important parts about chapter seven, because apparently it's going to be built upon in the uh, chapters that will follow. And I can tell you for a fact, what we're going to look at tonight in chapter two and seven are foundational to understanding revelation when we move into revelation. If you don't get these down first, you miss enough of the storyline that you are not going to totally comprehend everything when you get into revelation. A lot of our interpretations in revelation are given to us by the qualities and the characteristics that we learn in chapter two and seven. Okay. It's going to be so fun though, because we begin to build our knowledge about the characters on the stage of the play that plays out for us in Revelation when we move into it. It's going to be, again, do you remember how this week, one of the things you were asked to do is do a storyboard, right? Draw pictures. I know. Now, okay, you did good on the right. Okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to try to say this really nicely, but you really have to do those pictures. Here's why. Because if you don't do the drawings, there are things that you will miss. There, there are insights that you will read past. It's just human nature. We all do it. We look past something and go, oh, oh, I didn't, I missed that. Oh, I didn't understand that's what they meant. And you don't always get it until you're in the middle of the drawing of it, right? The other thing is this, when you move into Revelation, part two of Revelation, we spend four weeks drawing out the entire book of Revelation. The whole thing is drawing. That tells you how important it is. Now, why do you think that's so important? What is our literary form? Prophecy. What is prophecy? Images and visions. And you need to get those down in your head and get them visualized on paper for yourself so that you pay attention to each piece. Do you think every point that's made in the vision is an important point? Like when it's talking about the statue and it says the head is this, the arms are this, right? And it gets all the way down to the feet, right? And in the um, vision in chapter seven, when you get into the feet, it talks about toes, not just feet toes and how many toes are there 10 right so every piece of imagery is important and this is why visualizing it in story now i i understand people don't like to draw and but you know what was really cool is by the time we were done talking about it and we did the whole lesson together and we started sharing our 
our drawings together, those of us who did do it. The rest of the people said, okay, I'm going home and drawing now because I can see how this is going to be important. If you don't draw it now, when you go into Revelation, you're going to miss it there too. And you are building, this is the, the starting point of your understanding of, of um, eschatology. Understanding the whole picture requires you slow down and get the imagery of each piece of the vision that is reflected to you through the writing, but it's given to you in an oral form, in a written form. You have to get it visualized for yourself so that you don't miss all the pieces. Um, your pictures do not have to be great. And I can show you <laughs> my little pictures. Now, I've drawn these over and over and over. I even one time... Where's my other one right here? Okay, so you can see, I'll go up closer. These are my very silly little pictures. My, actually, my beast, my ter dreadful, terrifying beast, he kind of looks cute and cuddly. I want to give him a hug. <laughs> it looks like a blue teddy bear or something. And I did give him ferocious teeth and gave him a frown so he looked mean. But, you know, it doesn't matter that it's not a perfect drawing. And you don't have to be a great artist. Now, that was... I did this kind of a drawing of two or three times. I've done a revelation. I think this is my, this is either my fourth or fifth time through it. I did it once as a student and I've taught it, I think three times at this church and one time when I was in Virginia. So this is my fourth time to teach it. Every time I draw these, I find something new that I missed the first time. Last time we did this, I did it this way with clip art. I took clip art and put it together and did a storyboard. I can tell you though, now having done that, the clip art was not as revealing to me as doing my own drawing. Even though my own drawing is silly and not great, and a lot of it is stick figures, you're gonna see in a lot of these, I just do triangles, I gave them faces, sometimes they're, you know, they're little stick people, all they have is a head <laughs> and a stick body, but but it conveys to me what's going on in each portion of this. And so each of my boxes, this is verse two, this is verse three, this is verse four, this is verse five. So I did verse by verse as it gave me a new um, scenario of what was going on. I did a picture of it in each one. So I've got every verse done in here so that I can look at this and I know what's going on. That's in the first 14 verses. Then in the interpretation, which is 19 to 27, I went through and did those as well, okay? But you're gonna find that if you don't do these, you're hurting yourself because later, you're gonna to have to do it when we do Revelation as well. This is gonna be immensely helpful to you when you move into the next one because you're gonna have already figured out a lot by having done this. And if you don't do this, you're just delaying the pain. You're gonna to have to do it anyway, okay? And I can tell you, again, as I try to instruct concerning what is inductive Bible study about, it's about giving you tools that help you to come to sound interpretation. Sound interpretation is not by running to a commentary and seeing what someone else says about it. That's what we're all used to doing in the old days, right? Me too. I used to run to commentaries, but, but you know what I have come to find out about a lot of commentaries that I read now? they're not that good. A lot of times they're wrong. Now, sometimes they're right, obviously. There's, there's some good commentaries out there. But I have also found that very often they miss really big pieces. They just skip over it or skip past it, 
or they put in their own denominational persuasions on things on how they're trying to present an answer, but they're not factual and they don't back it up. They don't give you a cross-reference or a validation to what, what they're saying is their conclusion, or they don't even explain their conclusion. Sometimes they just give you a conclusion and then they don't explain how they came to that conclusion. I'm like, well, how do you know that? Well, if you do the homework yourself in inductive Bible study through this process, you've done the research yourself. You've looked at the verse, you've listed your keywords, you've made a list on them. Like one of the things she, she asked us to do this time is God and Daniel, again, begin to make a list. Do you remember last week what we did with those lists? Remember how we talked about what did we learn about God? What did we learn about Daniel? Wasn't that really profound in a lot of ways about learning the character of a man named Daniel and him living under a time frame in history where there was a lot of persecution. I mean, he was in captivity because of his nation and their, and their sin, but he was an innocent man as an innocent man who had been living righteously and trying to honor God as a young man, he's now in captivity for what his nation has done wrong. How does that relate to us today? Are we not seeing very similar things right now? We're under duress from our nation now simply because we are Christian and they don't like us. And we're going to find that the further down the time comes closer and closer to the end, it's going to get worse and worse for Christians. So we're going to need to learn these qualities that Daniel had of integrity and steadfastness and long suffering and faithfulness and just trusting and believing God and going to God in prayer and banding together with fr friends of like faith that would help support one another. I mean, all these things that we learned about Daniel are things that we need to know. And even more important was what we learned about who God is, right? who is God in this book in particular. It's not the totality of God's characteristics or attributes, but in this book, for the message of this book, we've learned about God that he is sovereign and that he is all-knowing. And those two qualities alone, how are they valuable to you and I to know when we're in a time in history where we're being sought after to be put on a list somewhere? How, how does... How does knowing that God is sovereign help us when we face this dreaded disease called COVID, right? We know that our God does what concerning life? That's right. He's measured our days. We're, our days are numbered by God. And do we need to fear death? No. Now, obviously, we need to be careful and not do crazy things. But the, what the world is doing to us right now is trying to shut us down as a people, not interact with one another, not have relationships with one another. And so if we believe the lies that the world keeps giving to us concerning things like COVID and other things, basically Satan has won, right? He's winning that battle because he has shut us down and closed us up and put us in our homes so fearful that we won't leave. But Daniel has taught us this book so far in the first seven chapters, we've learned that our God is both sovereign and our God is all knowing. We know that God measures our days. We see, we saw what he did with Belshazzar at the end of his life. He examined his heart, found him wanting. And that very night he lost his life. But yet Belsh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was seven years as a brute beast out in the field and over seven periods of time. And then what happens to him one day? 
God restores him back to the throne and gives him greater glory than he even had before. Amazing. Job is another example of that. So what we're learning about who God is and, and um, who Daniel are in those lists that we're making right now are really important. So don't forget to do those lists, even though they're kind of on the sideline from where I know your heart and focus really are, which is you want to understand these visions and what are the end time events that are coming. You want to understand the eschatology. You want to be able to understand revelation when we get there, but don't, don't miss out on the joy of discovery about who your God is and who Daniel was as an example to us as well. So that was all in your homework this week, making a list on God, making a list on Daniel, um, and uh, then the sketching of the storyboard. And then the last day's homework, day five, you were supposed to do kind of com some comparisons. She had us do a chart right here. Remember this chart right here? with your statue and and we were to list each of these and then look at the interpretation on it which we did right and then she said go over to channel uh uh to channel sorry to chapter seven and look at that dream and try to make a comparison so that's what we're going to talk about right now and we're going to try to draw as much out of what we saw in our homework together and draw any additional insights as we just discuss it together okay so let's start with the first one who had the the vision in chapter two in chapter two we're going back to chapter two first nebuchadnezzar, nebuchadnezzar. so open up to chapter two or pull out your chart that you've filled in that will be helpful but opening to chapter two i think will be good for you also okay all right so it the vision is given to nebuchadnezzar now who is nebuchadnezzar it's it's a simple question i'm not yeah he's the king of babylon he's a gentile right in comparison to who the two nations that we're looking at in the book of daniel on the whole is really basically boils down to Israel and Gentile kingdoms, if you really want to just make a big contrast in general. What we're seeing in the first uh, uh, six chapters is information that's given to a Gentile king about the kingdoms of men, right? So he gives him this statue dream, and then he begins to then have Daniel comes in and gives him an understanding of what the dream was about because he doesn't know it, right? Isn't it interesting then that God's using Daniel, who's in his captivity, no fault of his own, but while he's in there, God is using him as an instrument for God's glory and as an instrument to bring others into faith in God most high. So let's look then at that dream. All right, we said concerning the dream, what is the dream about? It's, it's a statue. And the first part of the statue is a head of gold. And when it came to the interpretation, who gave the interpretation? Daniel gives the interpretation. Oh, I got to write smaller. Okay. 
So he says about the head of gold, what? What does he tell him the head of gold is? Yep, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. Now, I love when scripture does that for us. And most of the time in the Bible, you will find that if a vision is given or a dream is given, if you just keep reading far enough, it'll give you the understanding of it. Someone will come up either one of God's people through God's uh, giving knowledge like he did to Daniel, giving him understanding. God will give that understanding or in is what we're going to see when we get into chapter seven, when Daniel has the dream, how does he get understanding? Yeah, somebody is standing. Who do you think that somebody is? So it could be. So it's some kind of a spiritual being. It's a supernatural manifestation of some sort that's given to Daniel. So a heavenly being of some sort comes and gives Daniel his understanding. In the case of <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar, God gives Daniel the understanding so that Daniel goes and speaks to him. Now, why would God do that? Why would there be, why not God just giving an angel to one of those Chaldean conjurers or magicians and letting them give interpretation to, to Nebuchadnezzar? There you go. The whole point is not that God just wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand his dream. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand who gave the understanding and from whom the knowledge of that understanding comes from. And by using his own people to do that, what it is, it becomes a witness to Nebuchadnezzar about God most high. So he becomes his witness. Okay, so we got a head of gold. The next thing on the statue is what? Arms and breast of silver. Okay, and what was the interpretation on that? Yes, there's another kingdom and it's inferior to you. And it's very interesting because in verse uh, chapter two, verse 39, he also makes sure that he, had, he says after, right? Some, read that verse. After you, King Nebuchadnezzar, after Babylon, there is going to come another kingdom. So he's making it super clear to him that your kingdom basically is what? Going to end. And when it ends, there's going to come another kingdom after you. Now, he does give one descriptive in quality of the second kingdom that follows him. What does he tell him about it? It's inferior. Did we already get a clue to that in the dream, though? What is the one is gold, one is silver. Somehow, silver is inferior to gold. Now, we know that at least by quality, right, of value. Um, I think that silver is actually harder than gold as far as strength, but we know value of it, it's inferior, okay? So he tells us by the interpretation, what is depicted here is the inferiority, that it's less of something, right? Okay, good question. What does that mean then? Inferior in what way? What do we know about the Babylonian kingdom? 
it was very big. When, when Nebuchadnezzar built, for instance, Babylon, the city Babylon, and he built what kinds of things were in that city? Do you remember anything about it? They're, those beautiful gardens. Now, whether they're true or fictitious is all, you know, debated. But what we do know... Bright. There you go. Uh, when we started, Daniel, I began reading to you all out of a book called The Rise of Babylon. And I read to you about a uh, uh, reporter that went to Babylon for some kind of a ceremony. And he was describing what he was seeing at the time of these huge, beautiful structures, this promenade that went all the way down, all these soldiers are all arrayed in this beautiful armor. They're all standing there like, in, you know, the soldiers up and down, the people, the procession of things that was coming through. It was just this grandeur to it, right? So when you, when you think back on Babylon and what we understand about Babylon and we compare it to the Medo-Persian Empire is that Babylon was much more um, beautiful, much more, it was richer. It was, it was more um, lavish. And so the idea of gold representing him and that then silver is somehow inferior, obviously it, it isn't inferior in strength necessarily. However, we do know that it had changed hands, right? We, we had Babylon, when it came on the scene, it took over a kingdom before it too, right? Do you guys know who the kingdom was before Babylon, which is not addressed in the book of Daniel? But do you remember who took the, nor the uh, northern kingdoms of, of Israel into their captivity? Assyria. Assyria. So there was Assyria before Babylon as a world power. And so Assyria had taken their captivity. So then Babylon comes on and takes over Assyria. Now, what, then we see Medo-Persia come in and take over. So apparently as the time passes between Nebuchadnezzar in 604 and Belshazzar in 553, there's a distinct difference. For one thing, we almost can see it by the behavior of Belshazzar described to us in that chapter six, where he's having a party. While who's at his door that very night? His enemy to take him over. He's sleeping on the job as a king, obviously, right? He's having a party and, and living vivaciously, you know, while... No. Right. And he had to have heard the rumors that there was a... Right. How could he not know? Exactly. So, so again, when you go back to your question, um, Sharon, about what does it mean it was inferior if it took it over? Well, I think what happened is as the time passed between Nebuchadnezzar, who was at the, be at the beginning, well, his father was even before him, but with Nebuchadnezzar, by the time we get to Belshazzar, Belshazzar is is not only is he dismissive of Daniel, he seems to be dismissive of a lot of things, and he's not really being careful as a king. He's not watching things carefully like he should. So he had let it wane, even though the nation itself, on the whole, throughout most of its time frame on the earth, through its 70 or 80 years or so that it was a kingdom, it was proud, it was beautiful, it was lavish, they had great wealth in that time. And so 
when the Medes and the Persians came on, though, they just used brute strength and the, and the dismissive attitude of a king who wasn't paying attention, and they took advantage and took control. That's a good point. <laughs> That's right. We do know. As a matter of fact, the statue dream tells us, God says, you're that head of gold, but after you is going to come another. You are going to be destroyed and another kingdom is going to come and take your place. Again, back to our, the sovereign God who is all knowing. So after Babylon, he says, comes another. And he's specific, another kingdom, right? He's careful to tell him it's another kingdom. And it is going to be inferior. In some capacity, there's an inferiority to it. Okay, and that's in 239. This one was uh, 238, right? Verse 38. Okay, now our third... Part of the statue was what? Belly and thighs. And what are they made of? Bronze. Bronze. Now, if you just consider, again, where we've already been, gold, right? Now silver. Now we're down to bronze. It seems to me like, again, it's digressing, isn't it? And what we see in verse 39 Oh, yeah, it sure is. I should just get rid of this rug. Um, okay, in 39, what we see then where it says Babylon will come, after Babylon will come another king inferior to it. What is the next part of that sentence? Is there a time reference in there? Then. Then, then what? Another. Then another kingdom. So do this. Then another kingdom. Do you like my kingdom? That's my little castles. They're so cute. <laughs> and, it's, and what does he say about that kingdom, by the way? Okay, that's right. It will rule over all the earth. Okay, 239. And then we've got the last one. What follows? 39 is verse 40. And what is the last part of that statue dream? Then, then a fourth kingdom. Now, how is it described in the statue dream? Legs of iron and feet. Partly iron, partly clay. That's in uh, 233, right? Correct. Okay. So did anybody, when they were looking at this, get confused that potentially we had two more kingdoms here? Okay. Okay. But... What happens when you come into the interpretation? What does it clarify for you? But what does it say? Then a fourth kingdom.
obeying them, right? And it, then it goes on to describe that fourth kingdom. How does it describe it? Divided. Okay, let's, let's just put down some of these descriptions. Divided. Divided. What else? Tough as iron. Some of it will be strong and some of it will be brittle. Some strong. Some brittle. We don't totally know what that fully means yet, but it, but what we're seeing is a description of this fourth kingdom, correct? And we definitely at this point know just by the interpretation of what, what is given to us that this, this kingdom here, where we see the statue, it's a head, it's arms and breast, it's belly and thighs and it's legs and feet. It's really interesting. The head is the only one that seems to be one item. Everything else, there are two, belly and thighs, right? Up here was arms and breast. When we get to here, it's legs and feet. So even though there are two things that are, that are list, listed here, uh, legs and feet, but here there were two also, belly and thighs. There was also arms and a breast, but they were each a single kingdom, correct? What we know so far, having done Daniel to this point, we know that Nebuchadnezzar says, "What you are that head of gold. What kingdom followed Nebuchadnezzar? Medo-Persia. Okay, so we see after Babylon is the Medo-Persian, and it comes, and it's inferior. So what we know is it's Babylon, Medo-Persia. What follows Medo-Persia? Historically, Greece, and then what? Rome. So at least at this point, just by what we know historically, we can begin to already see a timeline of history that's being given to us in these visions and dreams. We see some qualities that are listed that are supposed to give us some insights. This is one of the reasons why it's important to draw out these pictures of in the storyboards that she asked us to do. Because what you're doing when you're looking at these things and drawing pictures of them in chapter seven, you're developing your insights about those various kingdoms or the, the qualities that are given to us concerning them, right? And in chapter seven, a great deal of emphasis is, is put upon which kingdom? Whereas most of the information that you drew when you drew your pictures? From the fourth one. Isn't that interesting? And it happens again here. When you look at these, actually in verse 39, you get two kingdoms right there in one verse. It almost brushes over. Up here, same thing. Give you one verse to, and it just moves on. The next one verse gives you two more kingdoms. Then you get to, to the uh, four, uh, verse 40, and then there's how much detail given? Lots of detail, just already. And when we go into chapter seven, we're going to see the same thing is going to happen. What does that tell you just, at, you know, at first blush concerning your understanding about what we're seeing here in these world kingdoms? Where is the emphasis and what does that tell you? The fourth kingdom seems to be more important for understanding in detail for some reason. Daniel, I'm telling you something about this fourth kingdom. Let me give you more insight about it. And he did the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar, as a matter of fact. Because after he finished that fourth kingdom, what did he say was the next part of the vision? And I've run out of room here, but what is the next part of that vision of the statue? The stone. 
And what does that stone do? It does. The, the stone, what does the stone do to the statue itself? It crushes it and destroys it all completely, right? And then what happens to the stone? It becomes a great mountain. So on my drawing here, I have the stone and I did a great mountain, you see? And it says, and that great mountain does what? It fills the whole earth. So I drew an earth right there to fills the whole earth. So at this point, what do you think that great mountain is depicting? Uh, another kingdom. Now we're going to, I don't remember which homework lesson it'll be, if it'll be next week or the following. I, at some point, I think Kay takes us though, we do a whole bunch of cross-references on mountains and how they're used in scripture to, in pictorial fashion, what they represent. And so we're going to get into that later. So just hold on and know that we're going to address that on a uh, a more broad spectrum. We'll get more information on that. But what we know just from what we're looking at here in our um, statue dream is we're looking at kingdoms. So there, when you're talking about the stone and you know, the question, would that be, That's a great question, Sharon. What do you what do you think? A lot of people are trying to figure out what the, the toast, the mixture of all that, and they're thinking that future, but, but when it's first coming, I, I don't know. That's not when okay, so if you know this, if just in general, if you know this statue represents kingdoms, right. okay? And then the last kingdom to come is going to be the stone that's going to come and crush all these kingdoms, right? And, and they've all come, but has Rome ever been crushed and destroyed by another kingdom? Well, they destroyed themselves. Yes, but in the statue dream, who destroyed each kingdom? The, pre the predecessor to it, right? So we know that Babylon was crushed and destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians are crushed and destroyed when Greece comes. Greece was destroyed when Rome came. Who destroyed Rome? But have they been crushed and destroyed by a previous world kingdom, by another no. world kingdom? No. So if the pattern has been displayed to us that a kingdom will come and crush and destroy it, and we haven't seen that happen yet. Yes, Rome sort of dissipated into what by its right, but it was never crushed or destroyed by another kingdom that became another world kingdom. And since the pattern has been set that a, another kingdom will crush it and destroy it at some point, what we're seeing right now is that has not happened to Rome. Rome at this point has simply dissipated. So that's all we know right now. And so what you have to do is say, okay, that's all I know right now. But trust me, we're just at the beginning of this. We are going to layer this. When we go now, we're going to look in chapter seven. We're going to layer in some more information. Then we're going to go to eight. We're going to layer in some more. We're going to get into nine and 10 and 11 and layer more. And then we're going to go to Revelation 
and begin to layer in yet more. So just know that you've got a couple of years to wait for your total answers on everything. <laughs> But it's going to become, it's going to start to become really, really evident to you what's going on here as you do your homework little by little. But you have to be patient and let the scripture teach you itself. Because if I just give you the answers, then you're going to say, well, how does she really know that? Right? The doubts are still going to be there because you've got plenty of commentaries telling you stuff. Do you believe any of them? Or, or do you believe them all? And they're all so different. How do you know which one to choose to you know believe right the best way is to you yourself observe the, the scripture and i think the best tool the very very best tool of learning the bible is inductive bible study even though it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of discipline on your part but if you do every step if you mark your keywords if you make your lists if you do your timelining if you draw your pictures Little by little, each piece is going to give you more and more answers. And pretty soon, it's going to become obvious to you what that answer is to that question. Right now, we don't know yet. And if I just jump in ahead and tell you, I'm giving it to you and you have to trust me. But if you wait, God's going to show you the answer. And you're going to go, it was right there all along. I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see it, right? That's because why? What kind of uh, literary form are we working with? prophetic is prophecy some of it hasn't been fulfilled yet some of it has the parts that have been fulfilled are they obvious yes the parts that have not yet been fulfilled that's where we're still scratching our head right what part of scripture do we know has not yet been fulfilled the coming of whose kingdom god's kingdom so when that kingdom actually comes we're going to look at it all and we're going to do like like god says in daniel in time, you know, as more knowledge comes to you, you're going to have more understanding. But you only gain true knowledge once it's fulfilled, once God shows it, right? Until then, we have to wait on things. But I can tell you that because God has told us the end from the beginning, and when we go right now into chapter 7, you're going to see a lot of your answers are going to be right there. But it's going to get layered even more as you move into eight and into nine and 11 is really packed. I mean, it's very complicated, but it's really packed with great insights in 11 and 12. And then when we get to Revelation, you're going to just totally you're going to totally get a, your Revelation uh, uh, study. You're going to understand how to handle the text, what uh, tools you need to use in order to work your way through it. And it takes time, but you will get there and you're going to come to relax and, and really enjoy it. Right now, you're still struggling against it because you're not used to using the tools and the toolbox that are for prophecy. Prophecy requires different kinds of observation tools than if you're in the book of Acts or 2 Timothy, right? In chapter two, okay. In chapter two, 43, let's read it together. In 42, let's go back up to four. Well, let's go even to, to uh, 40 and just read all the way to through all that. Cause it kind of says, then there will be a fourth kingdom. That's where we started here. Then there will be a fourth kingdom. Um, 
strong as iron in as much as iron uh, crushes and shatters all things so like iron that breaks in pieces it will crush and break all these in pieces all these what all these other previous kingdoms right in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay partly of iron it will be a divided kingdom now when we get into seven when we look at the beast that one is going to keep telling us it's different it's different it's different and you need to pay attention to that word different and mark it as a key word because it's a quality about this kingdom that's the fourth one which we now have already said this is rome but how is it different and we're going to have to look at that in chapter seven and try to pick up on some of the clues that we get there about why is it different? What is the difference that God thinks is significant about it as opposed to what we might think is different about it? Is it different because it's stronger, because it has more kings in it, because why? So we need to pay attention to that when we get there. So it's, but here it calls it divided kingdom. Okay, and it will um, have in it the toughness of iron in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now, we'll have to talk about that more later. What is that talking about? What does it mean mixed and some is strong and some is weak? And, you know, what is the implication? What is it trying to tell us there? We'll have to try to work that out a little bit more. Then in 42, it says, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay. So some of the kingdom will be strong. There's part of your understanding. And part of it will be brittle. Now, what does that mean? What is something if it's brittle? It's easily broken, right? It'll shatter easily. And in 43, and in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another. How? In the seed of men. But, do you see the but? You want to circle it and highlight it because it's a contrasting term, right? But they will not do what? Adhere to one another. What do you mean adhere to one another? What does that mean? Right? So again, another question, it just, we don't have the answer yet, but there's another question for you. Even as the iron does not combine with pottery. Now it says in verse 44, now we're going to have some, a little bit of interpretation given to us, right? In 44, it says in the days of what? Those kings. What those kings? Well, go back up to 41. And you saw that the feet of it had what? toes how many toes are on the feet ten. 10 so down in this one it says in the days of those kings the god of heaven will do what he will set up a kingdom in which will never be destroyed and that the kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms kingdoms of who whose kingdoms men the kingdoms of men are going to be Crushed and destroyed by whose kingdom? God's kingdom. But it will self do what? Now, what did God say about all of these kingdoms? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to endure forever? No. But God's kingdom, when it comes, it's going to endure forever. So in this statue dream, the last part was the stone. I'm going to put it up here. The stone, it becomes a great mountain. And it fills the earth. What verse is that? It's going to be set up in Four. the days 
of the feet, right? Of the feet of this statue. In these days right here, this kingdom, which is God's kingdom, it's going to be set up. Now, here's a good question for you, Sharon, concerning the question you had. Has God's kingdom been set up yet? Not on earth. So when he says about this kingdom and about that stone that comes and crushes, do you think that's happened yet? Because when he crushes, what's God going to do? He's going to set up his kingdom. So has he done that yet? Has he crushed Rome yet? No. Not in the depictive form that's given to us here, right? And the standard has been set. See, do not deviate from the standard of, of the flow of thought. The flow of thought has already been established. First, this kingdom, this kingdom, this kingdom. Each kingdom previous to it crushes each one. When you get to the last one, it, there's another kingdom that follows it, and it's God's. And it says there's a great stone, and that stone does what to all these kingdoms? Crushes them all, puts it into what kind of kingdoms? Kingdoms of men. At this point, God has not done that yet. So that much we know now. And we know that these feet are a, are a kingdom time when there's feet. Feet have 10 toes, right? And those 10 toes depict what? Kings. In the days of these kings, right? So we now know those 10 toes depict 10 kings. In the days of those kings, God is going to set up his, his kingdom. Have we had a time when Rome had 10 kings and that God then came in and crushed it and set up his kingdom? Not yet. So it's future, right? We just conclude that it's yet future? Yes. Now, we still have a lot of questions. Lots of things going on in our head. Going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, right? I know we all do that. And I did that too, especially the first couple of times I went through this study. I was still going... Oh, I still don't get this, right? Finally, it does start to come into understanding. The, the more you hang with it, the more you do each step, it layers. That, that is exactly why precept is called precept upon precept. You learn a little bit, then you learn a little bit more, then you learn a little bit more, and each step layers on top of the one previous to it. So if you skip any of these steps, like drawing your pictures, you're not going to be ready for the next step. Okay, and you're going to miss some things and you won't have good interpretation. Okay, I think I've convinced you. <laughs> I hope. Okay, now let's do the next part. So that was, that was chapter two. That was a, a, a vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. It was during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, obviously. Now we're all the way down into chapter seven. And the king is who? Belshazzar. So we're in the time of Belshazzar. So sometime at least after 553, that time frame, right? And now let's look at that particular dream and see what we see. It is a vision of what? Vision of, now I love that, for Beast. I love the fact that it's already definitive, where with the statue, we had to wait until we got into the interpretation where we saw is there, there are four somethings, 
right? But with this dream that's given to Daniel, it starts right off the bat and tells you it's four beasts. Now, how are those four beasts described to us? Where are the beasts coming up out of, for one thing? Out of the, out of the sea. Okay, there's the winds of heaven, right? So if it's winds of heaven, where is this source from? Where's the source of the wind? From God. Okay, now beyond that, we don't really know what, what that means, but we know that the source of the wind is from heaven. So heaven sends the winds. The winds stir up the waters. And what comes up out of the waters? These beasts. Now, what are these waters? Yeah, the great sea. And what is the sea depictive of? Oh, I've forgotten where I marked that verse at. It says that the seas, hold on a second. Let me see if I can find it. They, they come up out of the, hold on. Oh, there it is. Verse 17. Go to verse 17. Because in the dream, it says there are these four beasts and they're coming up out of the sea, right? And that the winds of heaven have blown these waters. So it's the source of the strength of. So what does again that tell us about God? Who's in control of these? Yeah. Again, it really goes back to Daniel 2. God does what? He raises up kingdoms and he puts kingdoms down, right? So again, the source of these kingdoms is God himself. God is raising them up and God is putting them down. We see the winds blowing. We see the seas. We see four beasts coming up out of the sea. In the interpretation in verse 7, it says these great beasts, which are how many? Four in number are four what? Four kings who will arise from where? The earth. So now what do you know the sea is depicting? the earth, nations of people, right? Kings and kingdoms, the nations that are rising up. So interpretations right there in the text for us, which is so awesome. All right, so now we're gonna say there's a, there are four beasts. What is the first beast? Lion with eagle wings. Very interesting. When you go into the details of that, if, if, if we're looking at the first kingdom, let, let's go, and we know, there are, we know there are four of them, four beasts. These four beasts are four kings, meaning kings or kingdoms, correct? Mm -hmm. These four, do you see a parallel to the first dream then of Nebuchadnezzar and the statue? Yeah. How many kingdoms were depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's? dream four and which followed with the fifth which is God's so four kingdoms of men the first one here is a lion so who do you think that's depicting Nebuchadnezzar right okay how is he described here he has wings of an eagle that's the first thing we learned but then how else does he describe him and, and the mind of a, of a human man is given to him how, how do you see that explained to us in what we've already learned about Nebuchadnezzar? He did. Would you call that a plucking of his wings? And stood him back up? 
gave him, isn't that amazing? So this is, wow, just because we've already done chapter, was that five? Chapter, I always get these mixed up now. Chapter, well, two is the dream of the statue, but Nebuchadnezzar is humbled in four, in four or five. Yeah, okay, five. Okay, four. Okay, so he's humbled in chapter four. So when we, because we've already covered chapter four and we saw how God humbled him, we can look at the description that's given to us of this lion where it says he has the, his wings. He has wings then that are plucked out. Then we see that he's, he's, um, he's lifted up and made to stand like a man. How had he been living for those seven periods of time? Like an animal and a, like cattle been grazing on his four, all fours. So now he's made to stand back up and a human mind is given to him. So he's restored to his former glory again. So very cool insights on that first, first one, the lion. So that's the first one. What is the second? And it was resembling a bear. And that's in verse five. This one was in verse four. Okay, and description on it. Very interesting. Now, we aren't going to know all of our understanding on this yet. There's going to be more things that have to be given to us. For one thing, how much of the Medo-Persian Empire have we really gotten into? Not much. We got one chapter out of it, right? Darius setting up, and we saw Daniel in the lion's den. That's all we've seen so far. So, But we do know that it says it's resembling a bear, and it says that it is raised up on one side. Now, Kay gave us some pictures of that, right? And she said, cut these out and put them on your, your chart, right? Did you see how that bear was raised up on one side? Now, what, how might you interpret what, what that is in, in its depiction? What do we know about? Maybe because it's two kingdoms, one is bigger than the other or better than the other. Very good. That's a really good uh insight i think or it's a good, a good possibility we know that the medo persian who was stronger of the medo persian empire who became the dominant of the two persia's right so apparently raised up on one it may be the one that's raised up or the one that's one of the two one is stronger and one is more subservient or more dependent on the other right um the three ribs yeah Sharon, what are those? What is that about? Do we know yet? Okay, so what does that tell you that we need to do concerning that information? Wait until we get there. <laughs> Good girl. You're learning so fast, Sharon. You pick up on this lickety split. It is hard, though, and I understand that. But there are some things. Now, here's, here's one thing I do know, too, about a lot of these visions there are often little details that are listed in these visions. I, I never totally know what they might have represented. I can guess. But even like, for instance, when Nebuchadnezzar had the, tr the tree dream, and it talked about birds in the air and nesting in the tree. And I mean, I can take a guess, but did the, did the scripture ever interpret that for us and give us understanding of exactly what that meant? Not totally. I mean, there were some clues to it where it says that the whole earth 
will rely on him and they all come to him to be fed and so forth because he's the he's literally a dominant world power that is feeding the world at that time right uh, so we could maybe make some guesses but it's never totally told us so what does that tell me then if it's not totally addressed it might not be that important there may be a message in it and we could certainly take a stab at what we think it might be but if scripture doesn't clearly tell us what should we not do interpret something that we have no interpretation for now what we can do for instance the three ribs in its mouth let's wait and see if as we move through the book of daniel if we get more insight about it or if maybe at some point we do some historical research, maybe that's a, that's a, yeah, maybe we know it wasn't three kingdoms before it, but they may have been other kingdoms in the region at the time that were vying for that competition to become the world power. And maybe it devoured three to become that, it's going to be a little bit like when we go into chapter seven, remember there's 10 horns and then comes up among them a little horn. And what does he do with three horns? He subdues them from the roots, from its, from their roots. So we see Kings vying for power and positions in these kingdoms. Maybe the three ribs have something to do with that, that there was, there was at some point a power play, but we don't know yet. So all we can do is make some wild guesses in our head, maybe jot them down, but lay them aside for right now. And what we do know is it's the second kingdom. We now know by comparing it to chapter two, it's the kingdom that comes after Babylon, right? Which is, we know, Medo-Persia. And in this depiction, it resembles a bear. And what are the qualities of the bear and why is it different from the lion and all those things we have to kind of use our imaginations for right now, but we'll wait and see why God uses that. One of the things I did find interesting though, when you go back and study Babylon, what is its number one uh, visual, like it's kind of like in, uh, America has a bald eagle, right? What was uh, Babylon's sign? Uh, it was a lion. Yeah. On everything. Like all their old, their ancient finds that they, uh, rocks and stones and things that the archaeological people. And like when they would find inscription stones, they always had the lion on them. So that was their symbol. And so he uses the lion in the first one. The second one is the bear. Now, why we don't necessarily know yet. Okay, that's the second one. Now the third one, it says now another, right? And how, how is it described? Like a leopard in number six. This one's interesting. How many wings does it have? Four. Four wings of a bird. Why four? I don't know either. <laughs> but it is different because if you go back to the lion, he had wings. He had two normal wings, like most birds would have. Of course, it was a lion with two wings. That was kind of weird. But in this case, this one is a leopard, and it has four wings, right? But it also has four of something else, four heads, right? And 
what is given to it is dominion again. And when it speaks about dominion, what is it against saying then? What kind of power is it? It's a, it's a world power. Dominion is to, have, is to have control over or power over basically in maybe not totally the whole world, but what it's saying is it's, be, it's big enough that it is considered a world power that has influence over the whole world, right? So just like Babylon was a, was a world dominion, um, the Medo-Persians were a dominion. Now we've got this, this third one, another one, it's like a leopard and it, dominion is given to it, right? Now the next one. And it's called a fourth beast. Again, clarifying there are four, right? And how is it described? Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, right? Iron teeth. <laughs> but here's the one I like the, the most of uh, its description. The reason I like it the most is because it's the one that's repeated the most. If you go in and mark it as a key word, you see this word used over and over. What does it say in seven? Go to uh, chapters, uh, Daniel 7, verse 7. Yeah. And the re he, does, he crushes and tramples down the remainder with his feet. And it was different. It was different. <laughs> There's that word different again. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And what? And it had 10 horns. So it's different. And it has 10 horns. Now we've seen the 10 before, right? Over here it says it, it had these feet. The feet has 10. Over here it says uh, it was a, a kingdom, a fourth kingdom. It was, it was different from all this. And it says and the 10 toes, right, are 10 kings. Correct? So over here now we have another 10, 10 horns. So just note that, that we're following a pattern. Each of the kingdoms are being described. What we can do now is parallel them, that there's a sequential order. They're both seeing the same kingdoms, but they're giving us slightly different uh, identifying markers for it, which is really cool because anytime you see something twice and it's presented to you with slightly different um, descriptive words, you're getting a broader picture of it. You're getting more insight or additional knowledge about that kingdom. And so by Nebuchadnezzar telling you one quality or attribute concerning these kingdoms, now Daniel is giving you a little bit different insight about it, right? When you look at this, then it goes on after that, it says, and while I was contemplating the horns, then it goes into great details about that, that the horns, the 10 horns, correct? What does it say happens? Then a little horn, yeah, comes up. And what does it do? It subdues and 
and plucks out three horns, right? So let's just do the math here. We've got 10 plus one is how many? 11. And 11 minus three is how many? Eight. So we start with 10, 10 kings, right? 10 kings. Then we get 11 kings. Then it goes down to eight kings. That's going to be important for you to see those numbers because at some point, all of this, this mathematical work that you're looking at here, when you get into Revelation, you're going to need to understand it, what they depict and, and who they're speaking of, because it's going to help you to then also understand that vision that's given to you when you get into Revelation. Okay, so we had a little horn. He's called a little horn. I just want you to pay attention to that title, the little horn, because later there's going to come up another de depiction, of, depiction of a horn, and it's going to have a slightly different name, and we're going to need to be careful to try to distinguish. And we will be able to distinguish them um, at, when you look at it more closely, but it's not in today's homework, so it, it'll come up later. But pay attention to the fact that there's a little horn in Chapter 7. Okay, now... What does he tell us when he starts describing this in verses 17 and 18? What do we know about these four beasts? What is our interpretation of them? Okay, four beasts are four kings. Now, when time the scripture is talking about kings in the, in, in, in the comparison that we're looking at here, we see this head of gold is who? You, Nebuchadnezzar. And who does Nebuchadnezzar represent? Babylon, the king. Now, he wasn't the only king of Babylon, but he is the, the, the depict. There's only one head king at a time, right? So speaking of what? So when it says four beasts are four kings, you could also say four beasts are four kingdoms, right? Four kings slash kingdoms. I'm adding that in just for clarification that you understand that they're that there may be, for instance, in each of these kingdoms, there may be additional kings, but there's only one king at a time, right? All right, so four kings. And it says, where would they rise up from? Will arise from the earth. So again, we're back to saying these kingdoms that we're speaking of are kingdoms of men. They come from the earth, as opposed to later the stone, and that kingdom, which is made how? Without hands, without human hands. And so what do we know about that? If it's not made with human hands, who makes it? God does. So it's a kingdom that's going to be established and made by God. And that's going to be a kingdom that's not of men, not of the earth, but it's of the heavens. And the winds that are stirred up are by God's work, right? And then he goes on in verse 17, where he says, these are the four beasts. And then he has a nice big butt. And if you didn't notice that, mark it, circle it, highlight it, because that big butt, that's a contrast. Okay, there are going to be four beasts. Just telling you, they're coming. There's a lot of information. And that last one, he's a humdinger. He's, he's dreadful. He's terrifying. He's different. He crushes. He destroys. He, he's ruthless, right? I mean, his description is scary. All the details that you're going to begin to build on this week when you go into your homework next week, you're going to add on to your insights about that. You're going to begin to develop a list of 
characteristics and qualities about that kingdom and about those kings of that time that are going to help you to identify him when you move into other prophetic utterances concerning him and you'll recognize him. So this is why it's really important for you to pay close attention to your list making in when you're looking at prophecy. Prophecy, what it does, we're going to do the same thing when we go into Revelation in part two. Part one is going to be about the churches. But part two begins, it's basically going to be an overview of the whole rest of the book of Revelation. And in that first part, you're going to do all the drawings I told you about. You'll also do a lot of list making. And in that list making, you're going to identify characters. One of the characters we call who? He's a bad guy. The Antichrist. And that Antichrist, once you start noting the qualities and the characteristics of him, also the actions that he takes, the things that he's going to do, and you're going to start paying attention to how is he described, what does he do, what is his character like, right? And also, what's his end, right? That's also a characteristic or a quality about him that's going to identify you for him. So that when you then go to Zechariah, or you go to Ezekiel, or you go to Revelation, or any other passage that has information about that end time king, you're going to recognize him. Okay. That's so this is going to be an important part of your homework is learning to look for characteristics and qualities of each of these characters so that later when you see them again, you'll recognize them. Okay. So it's just kind of a heads up for you as to what you're doing here. So now he says, these are going to be four beasts. They're four Kings. They're going to rise from the earth, but Although they're coming, what else in verse 18? Yeah, the saints of the highest one. They are going to, number one, receive the kingdom. What kingdom? Mm -hmm. The last kingdom that is going to be set up by God, that's how long is this one going to last? And what does it tell us right here? Again, we're now seeing another quality or characteristic that's an identifying marker so that we can say, which kingdom are they talking about they're going to possess and, and control? Well, it's, it's a kingdom that does, how, lo how long does it last? Forever. Forever. So there's a characteristic that distinguishes it from all the kingdoms that come before it. So you're not going to mistake that the saints are going to inherit one of these kingdoms they're not it says they are going to receive a kingdom and it says that kingdom will be forever possess the kingdom forever will possess the kingdom forever yay there's my little clock forever distinguished quality or characteristic about what it is that they're going to be inheriting. Now let's move on. Let's go back and look again at what we see in 23, 24, 27 of that last, because now we're looking at, again, interpretation. We're moving forward on that Daniel 7 dream. We see what went on in the first part. So we're all the way up through 718. Now let's look at 23. What do we learn about that fourth kingdom? It's different. <laughs> There's that word again. It's different from all the others, right? And it's different from the rest. And, and concerning the feet, what does it say about the feet? 
in 23. Mm -hmm. And it says it's, does it say there it's a divided kingdom? Oh, not in that one? Did I get the wrong one? Okay, sorry. I, I probably pulled it out of one of the other. Um, Yeah, somewhere else it said it was divided. And that was an important quality I wanted you to catch on. Um, hmm, maybe it was earlier. Oh, man, I can't find it. I know it's in here. Uh, fourth vision, strong, long, devoured, crushed down, remainder feet, different. <sighs> Where was it that it said it was a divided kingdom? Does anybody see it? I may have pulled that from the other. Um, yeah, from Daniel 2. I might have made a mistake. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I think I, that's what I, I was my mistake. I think I pulled that out of the Daniel too. Um, I, I, cause I put on here, it was out of verse 23. Obviously it wasn't, but it was different. And how was it different? I think I must've made the reference back on to myself that it was, that it was divided. Okay. When he did say that in the earlier uh, explanation, when he says it's a fourth kingdom and it's divided, that's where we see that in chapter two. What does it mean that it's divided? We looked at the, co the concept of the feet having iron and clay and that kind of a division and not adhering to one another and so forth. But uh, what could be some other examples of it being a divided kingdom? Okay, maybe different peoples. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. One of the things Sharon brought up was, though, that Rome never really ended. It just sort of did, it did end in that it dissipated, but there definitely was that. Okay, there was, and the fact that it kind of dissipated but wasn't destroyed yet. That means, though, it is going to be destroyed, correct? Rome is going to be destroyed by the crushing stone, correct? Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for us about Rome and it being a world dominion? It's not destroyed yet, so what does that tell us about it? Yeah, it has to come back. So could that division, that it being a divided kingdom, also mean maybe there's a lapse in time? between the first part of the kingdom and the second part of the kingdom. The first kingdom being the, that era when Christ came at his first coming, which Sharon brought up. But at that first coming, he didn't crush and destroy Rome. He went to the cross and crushed and destroyed Satan and his dominion over death and sin. But he didn't destroy the Roman Empire. But it did, the Roman Empire dissipated 
but it was never crushed and destroyed by another kingdom, certainly not by God's kingdom yet. But yet in our depiction here of our, of our dreams, we're seeing that the stone is going to crush and destroy the Roman Empire, correct? And it crushes and destroys all those kingdoms that are even before it, meaning all world dominions and dominions of men, all kingdoms of men are going to be crushed and destroyed so that God's kingdom will be established. So when it says it's a divided kingdom, could it possibly be speaking about even a time lapse where there was a Rome, it sort of dissipated, but maybe it's going to come back. Have you, have this, you ever heard about revived Rome? Have you ever heard that phrase? Revived? Yeah, it's been around a long time. Well, what does that mean, revived Rome? Well, if Rome never was crushed and destroyed, and it's going to be crushed and destroyed, does that mean for us, as we make interpretation, that possibly Rome is somehow going to come back? And when it comes back, it's talking about the toes of the statue having 10 toes. And when it talks about the beast, it speaks about 10 horns on its head, right? And the horns represent what? Kings. Did Rome ever have 10 kings come together as a coalition of different nations working together cooperatively? No. So that's interesting to think about. So the idea of it being divided and being different are kind of some qualities. I'm just throwing some things out I want you to kind of ponder and think about as possibilities of wealth. And the reason I do this is to say, don't get just locked in on one thought line. Oh, it means this. And you just, that's done. I'm done with that because that's what I think it is. Because you don't know yet, right? What you have to do is factor in, how does God go about crushing and destroying Rome if Rome is not in existence right now? What does that tell you? What about Babylon? We're going to talk about that one a lot later, especially when we get in Daniel. We know that in Revelation, at the end of the age, what happens to Babylon? Vibrant, thriving metropolis of financial and trade and all kinds of things. And what's going to happen to it? It's going to get destroyed, right? There's going to be weeping, and in one day, it's going to be gone. One day, one hour, it says. It's going to be a, an amazing crushing of that place. But is Babylon that yet? At this point, Babylon doesn't even really, I mean, Babylon is sort of there, but not. It, they're trying to rebuild it, but does it exist yet? No. Was it ever crushed and destroyed as the Bible describes it? No. So what does it tell us about Babylon? It's going to have to come up be rebuilt for instance another thing there's not in the way that it's described in revelation okay because you just brought that up because there was a part that was confusing when we're here in the court of god and it talks about you know the, the beast and the three previous beasts just lose their power mm -hmm. they weren't destroyed Okay, and a period, for a period of time, there's an extension of life mm -hmm. yeah. that is extended. The one beast is destroyed, but then the others are given an extended period of time. So what does that mean? They weren't all squished before. So who are those others that are given an extended period of time? Good question. Did you do your drawings? No. I didn't. no. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here's the deal. How did you, you all do your drawings by chance? No. Okay. Not yet. I, I, oh, no. 
I know. Okay. But you're going to, I know you do. Okay. So here, here are my pictures here. I'm going to show you what, what I did. So here's our beast, right? We had them coming up out of the waters. Here's the winds. They're coming up out of the water. Here's our lion who had his wings plucked. We know that's Nebuchadnezzar. And this is probably depicting his being um, humbled by God. His wings are plucked. His kingdom is taken from him. He's made to have the mind of an animal. But then God will later stand him back on his feet, give him the mind of a man again, and he lifts his eyes to heaven and he praises God, right? So he comes in. So that we know pretty much that's what's being depicted there. The next one we're not as certain about all of the imagery in there. We know it's a bear, but we know it's Medo-Persia, right? We get to the next one. This leopard with four heads and four wings, which we haven't, fully understood all those pictures yet but we know what kingdom is that what comes after Medo-Persia Greece so we know this is going to be Greece then here we have the last one and we know this kingdom follows Greece is Rome okay so that much we know and beyond that we're not totally understanding yet but we know Rome is on the scene and then we see here 10 horns on his head a little one comes up in its midst. Can you see that? It's a little tiny. I, I made it black so that you could be distinguished in color. And then it plucks out three. So I colored three in red. And I gave them roots. Okay. And it says they're plucked out by the roots. Now, what might that possibly mean as far as a king coming along and subduing three other kings? Right. Somehow either... He merges them into his own power control, or he simply gets rid of them. We're not sure which it means. We just know that they are removed and they no longer have a problem for him. And, and what you can conclude from that is, what happens to the power of this one horn? He obviously becomes the big cheese on the head, right? And he somehow is stronger and more powerful than all these others. One of the things that we talked about here is that when you have a kingdom... There's only one real king at a time. Even in a coalition of 10 kings that come together, eventually ending or landing for us with eight, where's our plus and minus? I can't remember where are we here. Okay, so in the end, it, be, it becomes just eight kings. But we know that a, a kingdom of, of leaders of eight, there's one that's greater than the others. And he's kind of leading the others around, right? So he would be called the beast. Right. And the beast is going to be destroyed. Right. So in my next drawing, it talks about God. He sets up court. My poor God. I, you know, it talked about his throne. I, um, Kathy Cole's throne is so much cooler than mine. Hers actually looks like a throne. Mine looks like a wheelchair <laughs> with, the, with the wheels on fire. <laughs> but it has wheels and they're on fire. So I got that part right. So, you know, your drawings don't have to be great drawings. They just have to depict the right message. So God sits on his throne and, he, and it says he, the books are opened and the court is, sits to make judgment, right? So here's my little court. Here's all my little people. And there's the fire. There's the, the books are open. And it says he judges the beast. So do you see which beast I've drawn on my picture? Which one is drawn here? The black one, the one who subdued the other three, who probably became the leader of that group, right? Because a kingdom, no matter how, what the coalition is made up of, there is only going to be one leader at a time. I can guarantee that, 
right? So if the beast is destroyed, and then what's the next part of that? Um, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. And the extension of life was granted to them for an appropriate period. Okay, so dominion is taken away from them. So they're no longer a world power. Mm -hmm. They have no power, but they're allowed to exist, right? A extension of life is granted to them for a period of time. Well, because because in a coalition, somebody has to rise to the top as the leader. But it doesn't say that's what happened because it says the others are given an extension of life. So who is it that gets the extension of life if it's not talking about the other horns? Okay, so okay, so you go home and draw your pictures and you figure out how you're going to draw that. Mm -hmm. This is how I did it. I drew, I drew it in such a way that the one who has, later you're going to see as a mouth speaking arrogant words, he comes out against the saints of the highest one, all the, you're gonna, and he's called the little horn even though he actually becomes the big horn, right? He's the little big horn, the original. So he's the, the big horn. He's going to be destroyed. When you get revelation mixed in with this, this is all going to make sense to you because you're going to get more pieces of this story about actually sequentially what's happening in history. At what point in history are we? On a timeline of history, where are we when this occurs? What is the next thing that happens? God does what? God does what? Yeah, God's kingdom is set up because the saints of the highest one receive the kingdom of God. That kingdom is a kingdom that lasts forever. It's God's kingdom, right? That one's not going to be crushed or destroyed. And just prior to this, this beast up here who we're talking about is going to be destroyed. This beast is one that has a, a coalition at the point of when he gets destroyed, a coalition of eight, and there's one of them that's the leader of it. He, and it says one of them gets destroyed. The beast itself gets destroyed. If the, king, if the, power, if the major power player of a kingdom is killed, we go in and kill Saddam Hussein, right? Unless you have another king rise up in his place, what happens to the kingdom? It gets basically destroyed. But if it's a coalition of kingdoms, you've got other little kings, in this case, little horns, that are on the head of this big beast that had at one time come together to formulate a beast. But now those other, those other leaders, those other horns, are given or granted an extension of time for a period of time. Okay, well, okay, draw your pictures out and let's see what you come up with. It'd be very interesting to see. And also what's going to be great is later when you get more insights from other scriptures and you'll see what's actually going on in the timeline, you will get it figured out. I promise you. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, because how many 
kingdoms are there in the statue dream? Yes. A fourth beast, right? But on this one, it says it's what? A fourth kingdom. Does it ever say there's a fifth kingdom? Can you answer it, Kristen? Go ahead. Right. The stone comes and crushes it. What what we're showing you by doing this is one of the tools of a, a doing a parallel chart. When you did your parallel, hold on. Where is my here it is. When you did this chart right here, Sharon. Can you look up here for a sec? When you did this chart, did you have five or four kingdoms? Well, we have four, but it says in, in that you saw this mixing. So it's adding in another in, insight about that mixing. And in that you have that mixing. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some more information about it. Because my question is, I just, where, where does the Ottoman Empire? Oh, okay. It doesn't because it's not a world empire at, in relationship to Israel. And that is where all this information is. One of the things you have to look at when God is giving prophetic utter utterances concerning world history and the events of it, it's all around his working with Israel as a nation. It started there, but as a matter of fact, when he says in Daniel chapter one, verse one, he gives King Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Israel and the sons of Israel go into captivity to Babylon. And that had all been prophesied through Jeremiah and through Isaiah before they go into this captivity. And then what happens is every other prophetic utterance that God gives is all related to how he's going to deal with Israel. And as a matter of fact, in chapter nine, if you open your Bible real quick to Daniel chapter nine, verse 24 to 27, Read the, I think it's in 24. You just have to read the first part. What does it say when you read the whole, just read that verse 24. Yeah. Okay, back up then. It must be in 20. There. Okay. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so be keen to the message and gain understanding of the vision. 70 weeks have been decreed. For who? For, your people. for you, Daniel, and your people, your people, your people and are your and your holy city. So who is Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews. And what is the holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So all of this information in Daniel, he says, this is all those things which are going to relate to my dealing with Israel. As a matter of fact, when you start in Revelation, he starts out with the letters to the churches, but then he stops talking about the churches and they're never mentioned again in the book of Revelation. He goes into the throne room. He, he, he lets you know who's on the throne, right? And Jesus is rolling it. Then he starts dealing with Israel again. This is how I'm going to bring about Israel's redemption. And that's what 
all of these pictorial um, pr prophetic utterances are is how is God going to bring about fulfillment of what he's promised to Israel through Abraham? And what it does is it brings to full picture all, you go back to Genesis 12 and 13 and what God called uh, Abraham, where did he call him out of? Or of the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? Babylon. <laughs> he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of the land of Babylon, called him out, said, I'm going to make you a nation. And he does. He does it supernaturally. He makes promises to him. And then through that promises, he said, and I'm going to allow you, I think it's in um, 15, he says, for 400 years, you're going to go into captivity. Then I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to give you the land, right? And then he talks about, he says, but one day you're going to sin and I'm going to cast you off the land. And when that happens, then these things are going to happen. One of the things he tells him is through Jeremiah. I'm going to leave you in that captivity with Babylon for 70 years. Then you will come back and rebuild. But they're still underneath whose authority? What's the king that follows Babylon? Medo-Persia, who allows them to come back and rebuild? Cyrus of the Persian Empire, right? So again, they're no, no longer, um, what is the right word? You taught them, what is that word? Where they have their autonomous. own autonomous, that's it. They no longer have their own control over their own land. They're always under other kingdoms. So all these prophetic utterances are about Israel and how these nations around them are going to affect God fulfilling his promises to Israel. Not really. Not, not over Israel in the way that, you're, that these other kingdoms did. And they're not mentioned in the, in the um, kingdoms that are given to us. We, we go directly from uh, Greece to Rome as being the ones who are over Israel. The Ottoman Empire is there, but they're not over Israel. Apparently, I mean, that's what God's word tells us. Do you know for sure that they are? We know Ottoman Empire existed, so I'm not arguing with that at all. No. Not that... Not that I understand. As a matter of fact, it was uh, England for a while. England had control over it. It was, what was his name? Yeah, I've forgotten his name. Anyway, it was a general in the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So don't just try not to read more into it. Just look and see what God has told us about world history, what he's told us about world history and how it relates to Israel. And that's what you got to keep as your, your, your plumb line of what it is that you're looking at here. When God gives his prophetic utterances, it's concerning Israel and the worlds around them that affect Israel and how God is going to fulfill what he promised to Abraham and to his descendants. And in Daniel 9, he clarifies that to Daniel when he says, Daniel, these things that I'm telling you are about you and your people and your holy city. So all the world history, all these kingdoms that are mentioned that are having an effect are related to Israel and how, they're, how they affect Israel as a nation. And there are going to be other things happen through history, the stuff happening in the world today but they don't really have that same effect on Israel that these kingdoms did.
And it's all about us just pointing towards God fulfilling what he's promised. And that is, he's going to put Israel back on their land. Are they back on their land? They are back on their land. But are they, yeah, but has God established his kingdom yet? No. So that part of the fulfillment has not yet occurred. Has Rome been destroyed by God yet? Crushing of it with that stone. Has that happened yet? No. So it's yet future. Is Babylon going to be destroyed in the future? Yes. Is it in existence as we expect it to be yet? No. What about the temple? There's going to be a temple in the days when Jesus, when, uh, Jesus comes back and rules and reigns on the earth. Is there a, a temple in Jerusalem yet? Are they sacrificing yet? Ezekiel talks about it, though, doesn't he? But is it going to happen? But it's not there yet. So what is that? Right. Good question. We, we don't know yet. We haven't gotten that far into our study. And who's to say that maybe they're not a part of those 10 kings that come together as a coalition? I'm with you. I agree with you, but they're not named. So we don't really know them by name yet. We will later get some inklings about who they are when we get into Revelation and do our cross-referencing and additional work. We got two years of homework ahead of us. Hang on, baby. We're all going to know when it does happen. When it really starts. Yeah. Yeah. When it, but when we get. Yeah, when we, we're not at the entire, and we know that when we get into Revelation, we start seeing the breaking of the seals and the, and the trumpets that are sounding and then the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. We're not there yet. We're not in those days. And I pray we are pre-trib people and we will be out of here and we will not, we will not actually observe those things happening. Right? We will come back with Jesus when he returns at the end of those seven years. Yeah. But don't try to bring in more uh, historical information than what's addressed. What's addressed for us is all we're dealing with right now. We see uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we know God's going to destroy Rome. It's going to be crushed by the stone that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Now, we have to iron out all the information on that. What, is, what all does that mean? I think the drawing of pictures will be very helpful to you as to, and who are those other, it took me a long time. I had to work on that forever. And quite honestly, I don't think in Daniel alone, you totally get the picture. The only reason I was, I see it the way I see it is because of what I know from Revelation and other cross-references that we've done. What I know historically is going to happen sequentially to the Antichrist, when God judges him, when Jesus comes to rule and reign on this earth, who's present on the earth? Is it devoid of all other countries and nations? No. So there's your extended period of time. And there's some nations that are going to be left, apparently. Right? So I just draw those conclusions from other information that I have dancing in my head. But you have to kind of pull that. But, but if you just specifically write down what information they do give you. The only information they give you is 10 kings. One king becomes obviously the leader of them and he's destroyed. 
but the rest of them are granted an extended period of time. So who's the rest of them? Right? It has to be. Who are they? Well, it, it, and it's really going to all be about the logic of it. Who would be the rest of it? Who, the rest of them are granted an extended period of time. The rest of them who? And who's in the context of what's being said, who's being discussed? The ten horns. So it has to be the rest of the ten horns that are being addressed. No, you don't. No, you don't. So you have to draw a conclusion. Who could those them be that's granted an extended period of time? You just have to go up by your own logic. It's either related to the other horns or it's related to something that's not mentioned. So which is more logical? Yeah, exactly. You will. You sure will. And that's great. And that is, well, I'm telling you, this is a complex subject. This is why there are so many bad interpretations. This is why you can pick up commentaries and everybody has a different point of view. Even, even people I love and adore. I mean, some of the, the great theologians and great teachers, you know, that you go on YouTube and listen to, they all disagree about eschatology on some point or another. Now, we all agree on the big picture, however. We all agree that these kingdoms existed. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We know that according to this vision, Rome is going to be crushed and destroyed by God, and he's going to then set up his kingdom. Apparently, that hasn't happened yet because God's not here and his kingdom is not set up. So Rome, at some point, is going to have to be on the earth again and be crushed when God comes. And we may or may not ever call it that, but somehow it is going to be in the eyes of God, Rome. In, my, in God's mind, it's Rome. It's the, be it's the great beast, the terrifying beast at the end that he's going to be dealing with. Okay? So that's all we know, and that's where we work from right now, and we'll just move forward. Next week, you'll have more homework, and you're going to have two more weeks in this one chapter. So, yeah, you thought you were done? No, this is just the tip of the iceberg. But wasn't it fun? I know it's kind of frustrating too, but it's really fun. It's fun to do this because what you're doing now is you're using inductive tools to say, how can I be objective? Well, objective people look for key repeated words. They make their lists. They do their charts. They look at comparisons. They don't add in anything. Don't add countries or nations that are not listed and start pondering them because that'll just make you crazy. Look at what does it tell you and work with that, okay? Okay, yay, you did good, you guys. Thank you so much. I'm, I, I hope this worked well for the Zoom. Yeah, it went orange, but okay.